Good morning, family of God. Before I say anything else, I'm pretty sure Layla just broke the record for the longest scripture text read aloud in the history of Redemption Church. Can we give it up for Layla? She didn't stumble once, even on the word superfluous. So I think that was worth noting. Hey, if you are a regular attender, you know that we have been studying the gospel of Luke together, studying the life of Jesus as Luke tells the story. Last week we finished chapter 7 and I'm excited to get into chapter 8 next week. But we took a little detour this week to read these two passages of scripture, uh, these two chapters of scripture, which is uh, one of the parts in the Bible that speaks most clearly and beautifully to the issue of generosity. So that's our key word today. Everybody say generosity. And it talks about us being generous. God loves a cheerful giver. But more than that, this text talks to us about the generosity of God. As a matter of fact, halfway through the week, I changed the title of this sermon. It had been called A Cheerful Giver. Um, But then I switched it to The Inexpressible Gift. If you look at the last verse of chapter 9, this great section of Scripture talking about generosity ends with saying, but thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And what Paul is really saying in this passage of Scripture is that Christians worship a generous God. We worship a generous God. And our relationship with this God frees us for a lifestyle of joyful generosity, being generous with our time, with our money, with our affections, and so on. And the reason we are taking this little detour this week is we were sitting a few weeks ago at a staff meeting and we were preparing for next Sunday's dinner. You may remember we've got a fundraising dinner next Sunday to raise some funds for some youth activities coming up and to make some repairs to the building and a few other things. But as we were planning that, what came up in our conversation was this. We haven't ever done a fundraiser together as a church since Christ Community Church and Rancho Village Baptist Church merged and became Redemption Church. And so this is our first time. And fundraising for a church is not just, I mean, we do have practical financial needs and we want to bless people, but it's not just about that. What it's really about is learning to receive the gospel and respond as faithful disciples with generous hearts. So even if you're not able to come to the fundraiser next weekend or you don't have any uh, capacity to give right now, that's okay. I'm excited you're here because what this is about is learning to know Jesus and walk with him uh, in a special way. And we want to set a spiritual tone for thinking about generosity in our congregation. So that's my plan today. And uh, obviously, we don't have time to talk about everything in Second Corinthians 8 and 9. We could spend five or six weeks digging into those two chapters. So what I'm going to do is just give us a general overview to help you understand the context of these chapters and then zoom in to draw out a few key principles about generosity before we wrap up today. But before we get started, would you bow your head with me? I know there's a lot going on in a lot of our lives and in our community. I want to just take a second to quiet our hearts before the word of God again. And if you could pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to you today, then I will say a prayer for us in a moment.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you right now because you are a generous God. And we want to stop to give thanks for the ways you've been generous to us. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for being generous to create our families. Thank you for giving us homes to live in and food to eat and clothes to wear, meeting all of our physical needs. And most of all, we thank you for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. For the gift of Jesus, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have been so generous to us and we're so grateful. And I pray that the gospel of the generous God, the good news of your grace and generosity in Jesus, would hit our hearts in a fresh way today. That would inspire us to trust you and to worship you. And that our thinking would be refined today in a way that, would have the result for the rest of our lives. We would be a more grateful people, a more joyful people, and a more generous people because of what you spoke to us today. Please help me to communicate your word clearly and accurately. And say everything you want me to say and nothing you don't. And I pray that your spirit would give us all ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First, here's the context of these two chapters. Paul, the apostle, spent about five years of his life focusing on a ministry of fundraising. So this happened about two decades after the resurrection of Jesus. And during that time period, here's what's going on. If you remember anything about the biography of Paul, he, he was a Pharisee. He did not believe Jesus was the savior. In fact, he was actively persecuting the Christian church. Um, but then Jesus appeared to him, the resurrected Lord Jesus, and he became the most famous convert in the history of the world, going from persecuting Christians to becoming a Christian. And after that happened, he started traveling around um, from city to city, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the savior. He died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And he started a lot of the first Christian churches. And especially uh, he started churches among the Gentiles. He was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, Paul was a Jew, just like Jesus was a Jew and all the first apostles were Jews. But part of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came not just for Jews, but for all people. He came to reconcile sinners to God and to reconcile people to one another so that every ethnic group can learn to live together as one people of God and to love one another. He is the reconciler. So everybody say Jesus came for all of us. But the church was struggling to live into that reality. They faced a lot of conflict. And much of their conflict was playing out along the same kind of cultural lines and ethnic lines that were dividing people from one another in the world. And the church was trying to learn how to live in the world, but not sink into the pit of the divisions in the world, but to rise above that by the power of the gospel. Is that still something we need to learn today, church? And uh, specifically... Uh, there was an opportunity and challenge that came up. Often the biggest challenges that we face in life are also opportunities. And the challenge was that the Jewish Christians in the region of Judea were suffering because of intense poverty. That was the challenge. And their poverty had several causes. I'll just mention three of the contributing factors. First of all, if you were a Jew living in this region of Judea, You were taxed first by the Jewish authorities and then by the Roman authorities, which meant that for many of the Jewish people living in this region, they they may have been taxed up to about 40 percent of their income. 
Now, if you're making millions of dollars a year, you might pay 40% of your income in America today or, or get close to it. But uh, if you are a working person who's a fisherman or a carpenter, some of these kind of jobs that the early followers of Jesus had, can you imagine 40% of your wages being taken away? So that's part of the reason why when we read the Gospels and we get to stories about tax collectors and find out Jesus loves tax collectors, we understand why everybody was so shocked by that. The people were living in poverty because of this excessive, oppressive tax system. But on top of that, when the, many of those Jews be, came to believe that Jesus was their savior, at first they were worshiping Jesus within their synagogues, but as time grew, the Christian community and the non-Christian Jewish community began to grow apart. And those early Christians from a Jewish background were often persecuted and ostracized by their own communities. And their own community was their financial network. It was their safety net. So many of the Christians, because they were socially ostracized, had a special particular hardship. And many of their families had been touched by persecution. So they became even more poor. And then on top of that, in the late 40s, there was a famine. That area was very overcrowded. There was often food shortages. And then it became a famine so that many people were um, short on food and were really, really struggling. So the Jewish Christian community in Judea was suffering from intense poverty. That's the challenge. The opportunity that Paul saw is this. I want to go to the Gentile churches and do a ministry of fundraising where I'm going to invite the Gentile churches to spend several years gathering up money and saving money that then we're going to take and deliver to the Christians in Judea to support the needs of the poor. And he had two main motivations for that. First is that he just loved those Jewish Christians in Judea and wanted to help them. So our motivation for generosity is always love. Everybody say love. But second of all, he knew this, that this kind of sacrificial generosity, crossing ethnic barriers so that Gentile Christians would sacrificially give to support their Jewish brothers and sisters, would be a powerful witness to the reconciling grace of God in Jesus Christ. It would show the, the world and the Jewish Christians that the Gentile and Jewish Christians are now one family in Christ. So he's been organizing this campaign, and one of the churches that he helped start um, was the church in Corinth. And they had apparently initially responded with a great deal of enthusiasm to Paul's invitation to gather money that they could send back to the region of Judea to help the struggling poor Christians there. But as you've noticed, sometimes, do you ever in your life start something very enthusiastically, and then by week two or year two, the enthusiasm is now much lower? Uh, that happens. And apparently what was happening was the Corinthian church started very enthusiastically and now they're getting close to the finish line and they still haven't reached their goals of what they want to give. And so Paul's writing to encourage them and refocus them. Now, that that's the overall context. But now let's zoom in to this, because in this context of explaining uh, or, or of talking to uh, these Gentile Christians in Corinth about this situation, 
Paul gives us some of the most profound teaching about generosity that we could find anywhere in the Bible. So let me uh, just point out to you a few key principles. And if you're a note taker, you can jot them down. I'm going to give you a few things. And then I'll encourage you to spend some time this week studying these two chapters because we're not going to be able to talk about everything. But principle number one, which Paul emphasizes is this. Christian generosity is about freedom and joy, not compulsion. Christian generosity is about freedom and joy, not compulsion. Paul makes this point throughout the section, but I'm going to ask you to look with me at two verses right now. Uh, Chapter 9, first verse 5. Paul says this, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. I encourage you to underline those two words, willing gift, and then underline that word exaction. An exaction is some, a gift you're forced to give. It's not really a gift, right? If you don't pay your taxes to the IRS, they will come for it. They'll get that money. They can reach right into your bank account, right? That's an exaction. And Paul is saying, what I'm talking about is not an exaction, You're not forced to do this. It's not law. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a willing gift. He's saying, what I'm praying is that God will touch your heart so that you will voluntarily, out of freedom and joy and love, want to give. And if you skip down a couple verses, look at verse 7. Paul says the same point here. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Again, I want some of you all to underline those words. He has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Here's something I want you to think about as we think about generosity today. The gospel of Jesus Christ frees us not only from sin, but also from legalism. So the gospel frees us from sins like the sin of greed or the sin of Unbelief, not trusting God, the sin of selfishness, those sins could keep us from being generous, right? A lot of times we may not be generous just because we're greedy, we're selfish. Maybe we don't trust God, so we're afraid of what will happen to us if we're generous. But the gospel doesn't just free us from sin, it also frees us from legalism. We don't need to try and follow a bunch of rules to get God to like us and love us and accept us. It's not like God is trying to move us from a sort of hedonistic, hedonistic, licentious, selfish lifestyle to a very dutiful, legalistic lifestyle. What God is doing is inviting us to something different and better than both of those things. He's inviting us to a relationship with himself. And that relationship with himself changes everything about our hearts, about the way that we see our lives, and about the way that we view our time and our possessions. Now, this is an important point to make from the beginning because fundraising, the word fundraising, some of us, when we hear that word, we just like tighten up a little bit, don't we? We get a little nervous. And Christians aren't the only people that raise money. There's a lot of fundraisers in the world today. Politicians raise money. All sorts of nonprofit organizations raise money. And I think we can be honest at the fact that there's a culture around fundraising often that is characterized by guilt by manipulation, by pressure. I mean, 
maybe we could have a confession moment. Anybody ever been to a fundraiser or heard a fundraising pitch and it made you cringe a lot and you were feeling really pressured? How can I get out of here not feeling like a terrible person? Confession time? Okay, I see those hands. Um, here, here's what Paul is saying. That's how the world tends to think about things. But in the church, it's supposed to be different. It's supposed to be different. There's, there's a different way of viewing this. And he's saying it's not about an exaction. It's not about compulsion. I just want you each to decide in your own heart what you want to give. I'm going to say what, what I hope this means for all of us as a church and what I hope it means for you individually. What I hope it means for all of us as a church is this. If we ever are uh, doing fundraising like our dinner next week, I pray and hope and we will work to make sure it never feels like a guilt trip. Would, would you like that? I thought I was going to get an amen for that one. <laughs> Anybody want to be guilt tripped next week? No. OK, we, we hope it'll never be like a guilt trip. We will commit to do our best to never manipulate anybody, to never force anybody. As a matter of fact, I'll just say right now, if you can't come next Sunday, that's fine. And if you want to come and pray, but you don't have any extra margin to give right now, that's fine, too. It's not about compulsion. What Paul is saying here is just, hey, your money and your possessions and everything that you have are from Jesus. And he gives it to you as a gift. And now just receive it as a gift from Jesus and talk to Jesus about it. And then whatever he touches your heart to do, do that. Which means we're free as a church, if, if we're facing like, how are we going to fund this ministry or whatever? We're free to just make the needs known and then trust God and relax. Now, that's what I hope it means for us as a church. Here's what I hope it means for you as an individual. If you ever feel like your arm is being twisted to give to something that you don't want to give, you are free in Jesus to just not give to that. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, relax. 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 That Christian generosity is not about law. Let's obey the law to get God to like us or to get God to love you. Listen up, church. God already loves you. God already likes you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're already accepted. There's no condemnation for you. And I'm not just talking about generosity with money. I'm talking about generosity with time, generosity with our hearts. We don't want to proceed from a place of trying to crank out a little more duty. What God wants is cheerful givers, which means we start with a place of freedom and joy. Now, this leads to the second point. What is our motivation? Then here's point number two from this chapter. Christian generosity is a joyful response to God's prior generosity. God was generous first. And then the way this works is when we understand how generous God has been to us, that changes our hearts and it frees our hearts so that we actually want to be generous in response as an act of worship to God. Now, I want to point you to two verses in this text, one from chapter eight, one from chapter nine. These happen to be my favorite two verses in this text. So if you've got a lot going on in your life and you only have like five minutes of attention span for this sermon, I would appreciate it right here. This is the most important five minutes. Okay. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine is my favorite verse in this text. Probably my favorite verse in all of second Corinthians. Let's read it It says, for, you know. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become 
rich. In the midst of talking about fundraising, Paul stops and says this. Here's what he's saying. God is a generous God. And if you want to know what the generosity of God looks like, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. It says he was rich and then he became poor. What does that mean? Paul is assuming a lot of theology here. Here's what he's assuming. When we read the Christmas story about Mary, the Virgin Mary becoming pregnant and giving birth to Jesus and wrapping him in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's a beautiful story. Don't you love that story? We read it every year. But a thousand years before Mary became pregnant, the Son of God already existed. When Mary became pregnant, that was not the beginning of his existence for Jesus. He already existed. 5,000 years, he already existed. Before the foundation, he already existed. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, who has always existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. He has always been infinitely happy, infinitely loving, infinitely joyful, filled with power and life. Jesus lacked nothing. He was rich from all eternity. And yet, what we're celebrating at Christmas, this is a great Christmas verse, by the way, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It's one of the best verses to think about at Christmas time. What we're celebrating at Christmas is that the eternal son of God, infinite abundance of life and happiness and wealth, took on a human nature and came among us as the person of Jesus. He borrowed from us vulnerability. He took from us mortality. He took from us smallness. He became weak and dependent. He was born not only as a vulnerable human being, but as a vulnerable, poor human being. Living among, as an oppressed Jewish person in Palestine. He wasn't from the center of the Jewish community either. Came from Nazareth. Does anything good come out of Nazareth? He, he was born as a marginalized person. Throughout his life, he walked a path that was not... An easy, wealthy path. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. His life was not easy. Throughout that time, he identified with sinners. He humbled himself. He served himself. He became poor. And the climax of his poverty is the cross. I mean, think about the cross of Jesus. He's taking on himself the sin of the world, the guilt of the world, the shame of the world. And he is as poor as anybody could be. Literally, the the text of Scripture tells us his very clothes were taken from him and the Roman guards gambled over who got his tunic. He has zero possessions, not even clothes. Nothing. Second Corinthians eight, nine, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet He became poor. Why? For your sake. So that by his poverty, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What does that mean? Friends, we were poor. Some of us have dealt with financial poverty, but all of us have dealt with spiritual poverty. We were all born into sin. We have all many times chosen to participate in the evil of the world. We have all acted selfishly. We've all hurt other people. And when we live in that sin, 
we alienate ourselves from God and from ourselves and from other people and we earn death. That's poverty. Jesus came to the cross to endure our poverty, our weakness, our evil, our sin so that we can be rich. What does that mean? Anybody in this room who believes in the Lord Jesus and who trusts in him, God says he or she is forgiven. You're adopted to be a child of God. You're accepted unconditionally into God's family. You're in a covenant relationship with of love with God. Nothing can ever break that covenant of love that God has for you. You will rise with Christ to have a resurrected body that will never die, to live with him in a new creation where he has gone ahead, according to John, to prepare a mansion for you. That's the gospel. He became poor so that you might be rich. Friends, did you do anything to earn that? That's why it's called generosity. That's why it's called grace. We didn't deserve it. He just loved us. He just loved us. And that's that's where he's really starting. Paul is when he talks about generosity. But look where he ends. Chapter nine, verse 15. Look again at that last verse. After he's been talking practically about the mechanics of this fundraising campaign, and he's been talking about their motivations, he then ends by saying, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Inexpressible means, literally, you can't express it. There's no language adequate for it. Paul cannot find words to describe how generous God has been to us in Jesus. And I definitely can't find words. God has been more generous to you and me than what we could possibly express. Church family, I think we need to get somebody to testify in here this morning. Has God ever paid your bills when you didn't know how you were going to do it? Has God fed you? When you were sick, did God heal you? God give you breath this morning. You ever get forgiven for stuff you didn't deserve to be forgiven for? You got the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Is your future secure in Christ? Has God walked with you through all the trials and tribulations of your life? Can we give glory to a generous God? Paul, Paul is saying you need to, if you want to have a generous heart, you don't need to try and crank it out. You just need to gaze at the generous God. Gaze at the face of generous. And then what happens? Okay, I'm going to move fast. Those are the main points. So I'm going to just make a couple more points quick before we wrap up. Christian generosity, Paul says, is an act of grace. In chapter 8, he calls it an act of grace three times. Everybody say, act of grace. Now, that's a phrase Paul uses specifically to talk about the Holy Spirit empowering Christians to do good works that bless people for the glory of God. So when you see that phrase three times in 2 Corinthians 8, here's what it means. An act of grace is something that you do that was supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit. He empowered you to do a good work that would bless people for the glory of God. And I'm just going to show it to you in one of these verses. Verse 7 says this. But as you excel in everything, in faith, this is chapter 8, verse 7. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This act of grace meaning giving generously, financially, to help the Jewish Christians who are struggling in poverty. Now, I just want you to hear this. 
Generous financial giving is a Holy Spirit-empowered, God-glorifying act of grace. That's what it is. Now, I pause here to emphasize this because as a pastor, I've had several variations of, of a certain conversation over the years. I remember the first time it happened was, I don't, I don't remember how long ago, but many, many years ago, there was a, a man who came and talked to me. And he was involved in various ministries serving, but his schedule made it difficult for him to serve as much as he wanted to. And he was feeling kind of guilty about it, wanted to contribute more. And uh, he said, I just feel like, you know, I'm able to give some of my time. But but I also feel like um, the main thing I'm giving is just my finances. And then he told me what he was really feeling guilty about was that he had just got just got offered a new position, which was going to double his salary. This person's not in the room. If in case anybody's wondering, it's you. Uh, I don't think this has happened to any of you either, but his salary just got doubled and he felt guilty about it. And uh, he felt guilty about it because Jesus says some stuff about not loving money and all those kind of things. And we went and looked at some scriptures where it talks about giving as a spiritual gift. He was saying, I know I'm contributing a lot financially and serving some with my time and other gifts. Um, but but I just feel bad because I feel like the main thing I'm able to do is financially. And that doesn't feel very important. And now I'm making all this money and I feel bad about it. And I told him something that I hadn't told very many people. We looked at various passages of scripture that talk about giving as an act of grace and even talk about a spiritual gift of giving. And I told him, hey, a couple of months ago, I met with our stewardship committee and it became clear that if we continue doing all the outreach ministry and all that we're doing to share the gospel and care for the poor at our current rate of income, the church is going to go bankrupt in a few months, which means we're about to have to cut back programming if giving doesn't increase. And I prayed specifically that if there's whoever are the people in the church that have really generous hearts, that God would bless them with increased finances so that they could give more. And then you came and told me, all I'm doing is supporting the church financially. And now my salary's doubled. <laughs> and he started crying. The reason he started crying is because he never felt like his ministry of financial generosity was as valuable as other forms of giving. And I've had a variation of that conversation several different times. But here's the thing. When people say all I'm doing is contributing financially, just look at the other acts of grace in this list. Would you ever say, man, I feel like I'm not pulling my weight. All that I'm ever doing is loving people really well. Man, I feel like a spiritual failure. All I'm doing is just having radical faith in Jesus. All I'm doing is knowing God deeply and speaking words of life that bring salvation to people. You would never say that about those acts of grace, would you? So Paul is saying generosity, including financial generosity, is in the same category. Everybody say an act of grace. So I just want you to feel encouraged. It's valuable to God. Okay, next next principle from this chapter. Christian generosity is for the rich, the poor and everybody in between. Doesn't matter how much money you have, this is for you. First, let's look at what Paul says about the generosity of poor people. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Pause. How many times have you seen those words go together? A severe test of affliction. Extreme poverty, abundance of joy. Severe test of affliction. They're suffering a lot. This is like the Philippian church in Macedonia. They're suffering a lot. They're living in extreme poverty. 
And in the midst of their extreme poverty and suffering, they've got so much joy they can't keep it in. And it's overflowing with a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I could testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. You should underline those phrases as well. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Here's what he's saying. Those Christians in Macedonia were so poor, they actually could not afford to give. They could not afford to give, and yet they begged the, the Apostle Paul for the privilege of giving beyond what they could afford because they were so grateful for what Jesus did for them, and they trusted that Jesus would meet their needs. When we're thinking about deciding in our heart how much we can give, this doesn't actually mean how much can we afford. It re- what it really means is deciding what we want to give. There's no condemnation for giving less And it doesn't make you any more saved to give more. It's really just deciding in your heart, what do you want to give? And the Macedonians took the love dare. I think that's a book about marriage. I haven't, I don't think I've read that book. But they took a different kind of love dare, which was, we love Jesus so much. We want to express our love for him. But what do you give to the Jesus who has everything? He's already seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ said, whatever you do for the least of my brothers, you do it for me. And his brothers in Judea are suffering. We want to give sacrificially to Jesus. So even though we can't afford it, we're going to give. They may, maybe they only contributed, I don't know, for us it would be like a hundred bucks from their whole church. But before God, it was a beautiful act of worship, like the widow's might. The Corinthian church, on the other hand, they're prosperous. They're doing well. So if you look further down, verse 13 through 14, Paul says this. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness... Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. Here's what he's saying. They've been generous in their poverty. And he's saying, you guys have really been blessed by God with your wealth. And they lived in very financially unstable times. So Paul's saying, "You, you might not be wealthy in 10 years. You might not be wealthy in two years. Maybe 18 months from now, I'm trying to raise money in Judea to bring to support the poor churches in Corinth. He says, but in the meantime, I've blessed you. And notice, Paul doesn't want him to feel guilty for that. He's not shaming them for their privilege. What he's really saying is, if God chose to bless you with a lot of money, it's so that you can be a blessing to use that money to care for others for the glory of God. So if you're poor or if you're wealthy, generosity is for you. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, it's for you. All right, number five, fifth, fifth principle here. Christian generosity is undergirded. By confidence in God's faithful provision. Why can we give? Here's what, here's what I would say. One of the main reasons that we don't give is because we're afraid of what's going to happen to ourselves and our families. Is that real talk, people? That's one of the main reasons we don't give. So why are these people, like the Macedonians, so willing to give? And Paul doesn't rebuke them for their imprudence. He praises them for their faith. It's because they and Paul know some things about God which are described in chapter 9, starting in verse 8. Look at it with me. It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. 
He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Okay, this is one of the texts of scripture that sometimes has been manipulated by Christian fundraisers doing a manipulative thing. And here's what people have said. You may have heard it on TV. If you watch Christians on TV, you've probably heard these verses quoted. And what they'll often say is, you've got to sow your seed. And whatever size of seed you sow, you're going to get back from God a quid pro quo times sum. If you give my ministry $1,000, you'll get 10000 back or something like that. That is manipulation, okay? Paul is not saying the more you give, the richer you're going to be. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is you can be as generous as you want to because your father will take care of you. That's what he's saying. He's not saying however much you give, like if I give 10 bucks, it's, it's an investment. It's going to pay off like a CD, but better because God has better interest rates or something. That's not what he's saying. So, some of you, God may be called to be a wealthy person who gives a lot right now and then later be a poor person. And if that happens, God is not jipping you. What Paul is saying is this, I will feed your kids. He's saying God is saying that. Paul's not going to feed your kids. Neither am I. God is saying, I will feed your kids. I will take care of your family. So you be as generous as you want to be. All right, moving, moving uh, on here. Sixth principle that I want to state that's so important. The integrity of Christian generosity is worth protecting even when it's inconvenient to do so. The integrity of Christian generosity is worth protecting, even when it's inconvenient to do so. The reason some of us get uptight and cringe a little bit when we hear the word fundraising is because there have been so many scandals about money. There have been so many stories of people mishandling money, which is part of the reason why. Do you want to know what makes me cringe? It makes me cringe when I get around a Christian church or nonprofit organization that has very poor accountability policies and says, we're just going to trust each other because we're all God's people. That's a terrible idea. Y'all need the doctrine of sin, of original sin and of indwelling sin. And I'll tell you something. I sat down with one of the leaders of our Baptist denomination. Uh, this was probably about two years ago now. And he said that they did an audit that went and audited hundreds of Baptist churches like ours and found out that in more than half of them, they discovered misappropriation of funds. Mostly accidental. I mean, sometimes somebody was just embezzling money, sadly. But mostly, accidentally, people misusing money because they had bad policies. Isn't that sad? Grandma comes and worships the Lord on her fixed income and puts her $20 bill on the offering plate and then somebody doesn't have good policies. That's sad. That's part of the reason why we get cringe about this stuff. Well, Paul says, because of that, we're going to go above and beyond. Look at, look at verses 20 through 21. He said, we take this course... And if you want to know what this course means, go read the surrounding context. Paul is saying we're sending three people from different churches that were appointed by their churches to carry this gift. They can't do a wire transfer. Okay, there's no Venmo in the first century. So they've got to carry this gift by hand, a lot of money. So he's saying we're not sending just two. We're sending three. They're not all coming from one family. They're not all coming from one church. We want accountability on this thing. Now, traveling was expensive and traveling was dangerous. Was that a convenient choice to make? No, it was not. But look what he says. He says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. 
For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Now, that's interesting. Usually, Paul says, I don't care what people think. Only God can judge me like Miley Ray Cyrus, but different. Is that Miley Ray Cyrus? Who said that? Somebody said, I don't remember this. Okay. Uh, Tupac said it, too. (laughs) I think probably everybody said that. (laughs) Somebody said it recently. Anyway, here's the point. Normally, Paul is saying, I don't care what people think. I just want to please Jesus. But he's saying when it comes to money, I want to please Jesus and people. I want to be above reproach. Let, Let me talk about practically what that means. If there's a way we want to be generous to one another that the IRS doesn't like, we're not going to do it. Even if it would benefit me. I have had the experience as a pastor over the years, several times people say, hey, I want to bless your family. I want to give you a gift. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm so humbled. I'm thankful. And I want to give it through the church so it's tax deductible and they can give it directly to you. We actually can't do that because that's money laundering. Oh, no, no, no. It's just because I love you. It's like, well, if you love me, you can, you can give me the gift without the tax deduction. You know? But to do it through the church is money laundering. And, and I have not received several gifts because of that. The IRS thinks it's money laundering. Do you know why the IRS thinks it's money laundering? Because it is money laundering, okay? That's why. You can't tax deduct a gift to a person. There's a, there's a lot of things like that that as a church will do. We have a stewardship committee. Nobody who's on staff of the church is on the stewardship committee. The stewardship committee sets the budget, sets the financial policies. And we uh, are working on always improving the efficiency of our systems. But even when they're inconvenient, we try to have, go above board of having accountability because we want to honor every dollar given in the name of Jesus. Sound like a good plan, church family? All right, last point. Then I'm done. The, the last thing I want you to hear from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is this. Christian generosity inspires people to worship God. It inspires people to worship God. Look with me at chapter 9, verses 12 through 15. It says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Then again, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What Paul is saying is this. When you give generously because you trust in Jesus and you're trying to respond to his generosity towards you with gratitude, that's an act of worship to God. And then the money that you give blesses people and helps people. And then they give thanks to God and it starts a cycle of worship that more and more people are worshiping the Lord. It's ultimately about responding to God's generosity In a way that's trying to worship God and give glory to him. Which is why I like it when Kent is announcing the offerings. And he he does not say, we're about to pause worshiping in order to take up a collection. Have you noticed what Kent usually says? He says, we're going to continue worshiping the Lord through our giving as well as through our singing. That's the heart behind it. Now. If you think about how you can put this to practice in your life practically, there's a lo- there's a million different ways. A million different ways. You can be generous with your money. You can be generous with your time. You ever been blessed because somebody gave time to you when you needed their time? You can be generous with your words. You can be generous with your affection. You can be generous in all these ways. 
When it comes to financial giving, I don't have time to go look at this. If you want more verses, I can give you some. The New Testament emphasizes especially three practical kinds of giving. One, helping the poor. Two, supporting the ministry of your local church. And three, funding mission work that's taking the gospel out to people. All three of those are good opportunities. But I want to end right now, really not getting into the details of, of any of that practical stuff. I want to end right now just saying this. What God is really after from us today is a heart that trusts him and thus becomes a generous heart. And if we have generous hearts, we'll figure out the practical stuff as we go. And the way that we get generous hearts is by having eyes that are fixed on Jesus and the inexpressible generosity of God through Jesus. So before we wrap up, I just want to invite you to bow your heads with me. And we're going to sing one more song responding to God's word through uh, through worship. In song, But I just want to give you a moment now to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit will touch your heart to help you see more clearly the generosity of God towards you in a way that frees your heart to be generous towards others. And I'm going to say a prayer for you. Our Lord, as we've said, we just say again, thank you for your generosity towards us. And I pray that you would give us generous hearts. Lord, if if there's people in here, as I'm sure there are, who our struggle has really been legalism, that when we think about giving, we often feel guilt and fear and shame and compulsion, I just pray that the gospel of Jesus would set us free from that. That we know that you love us. Ultimately, you don't need our financial resources. You have cattle on a thousand hills. But you invite us to participate in what you're doing. So free us from that. Free us also from the sins of greed and selfishness. Forgive us for those things in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that uh, now and for many years to come, we would be a people whose hearts have been set free by your generosity in a way that makes us want to be generous to others. And we would freely and joyfully and sacrificially give to care for the poor, the vulnerable, and the oppressed. We give to support the ministry of our local congregation we give to advance your kingdom among all nations. We pray these things for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.